What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question, maybe maybe even two questions or so, uh, about the Catholic faith that you're trying to get answers for because they're just, you know, it's kind of a roadblock for you? Well, we can help you with that. We'll get you the right answers. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening in uh, Indonesia, well, or, or did I miss? I think I, I think I skipped the H's. If you're listening in Hungary, then your number is 205-271-2985. All right, 205-271-2985. The area country code for us is the number one. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for this program. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Rich will uh, see it. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One. By golly, we're off to the races. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Thank you. Interesting question here from Caleb in Cortland, New York, who says... My understanding of the church's teaching is that if I am guilty of 20 mortal sins and at confession I am only truly conscious of one of them, then after confessing I am absolved of all 20. What happens if the next day I remember what another one of the 20 were from before? Now that I'm conscious of this past mortal sin, am I obligated to confess it, or has it indeed been forgiven? Uh, Ad imitation et petrus, Caleb. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So when you are absolved, you are are absolved. You don't suddenly re-incur guilt from which you have already been absolved. But as a spiritual discipline, the Church advises you to make that, uh, that sin known in your next confession. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, very good. And uh, Caleb, thanks so much for your email. Here's one from John in South Texas. John says, Howdy. I recently completed a Bible study on Acts. I have a question concerning Acts 15. I thought Christ's sacrifice released us from the Mosaic laws. Acts 15.29 says, Abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, and from blood. Uh, My question concerns the mention of blood. What does this mean? No more rare steaks? Are there other mosaic expectations still in effect? Again, that's from John in South Texas. Yeah, thanks. So to be sure, you are not obligated to refrain from eating blood sausage or rare steaks or anything of the sort. Um, And the, the reason for the inclusion of that in the decision of the council was that this was not only a moral ruling, but it was a pragmatic rule about how to integrate Gentile Christians with the Jewish population. Uh, which was, you know, the Jewish Christians, I should say, which were the majority, and how how are you going to deal with Gentiles when they come into the community? Uh And there's a significant body of people that said, well, they need to follow the law of Moses. And the fathers of the council said, no, they don't. That's that's not the way to justification. That's not the way to being right with God. Uh, But they made some concessions 
for Jewish consciences in saying, well, you know, refrain from meat sacrifice to idols and so forth. Paul deals with this again in 1 Corinthians, where he says, when it comes to the question of your spiritual liberty in Christ, you're not obligated to these kinds of details of the law. However, if your eating meat sacrificed to idols would lead your brother into sin, then it's better to refrain for his sake. And this is one of those kinds of concessions. Okay, very good. And uh, thanks so much, uh, Caleb, for your email. Here's one now from uh, T.A. And T.A. says, There are instances in the Scriptures where our Lord Jesus Christ strictly warned those present observing or concerned not to tell anyone about a miracle worked on or a revelation made. Plenty of examples of this, uh, the leper who was cured, uh, Jesus touching the two blind men, uh, etc., etc. So, two questions here. Why did he want to hide those miracles from others? And did those who spread that knowledge of the miracles commit the sin of disobedience? Um, Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, this is what biblical scholars refer to as the messianic secret, the fact that Jesus seemed to want to keep his identity secret. Uh, How to interpret that? Well, I will give you a thought. You can take it or leave it, and I don't claim that this is the definitive answer. Jesus resisted pat formula in his presentation of himself and his ministry, and one of the things that's, to me, interesting about the ministry of Christ is how sort of provocative and evocative and confrontational it was, that it seems that it was less about saying, I'm going to give you the five-point plan for righteousness, (laughs) and more about calling people to radically transform their lives, their view of themselves, their relationship to their neighbors. Uh, Think about Jesus's confrontation with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 12, for example. The guy comes up to him and says, what should I do to be saved? And Jesus says, hey, you already know what to be saved. You you already know what to do. Why are you asking me? Go follow the commandments. And the guy says, well, you know, no, that's not good enough. I need something else. And then Jesus says, okay, well, in that case, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And the first answer seems almost like a tease, like Christ is trying to ask the guy to dig deeper. Uh, Think about when he heals the man in the uh, in the synagogue, heals the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. He, before he does it, he stands up and asks the assembled crowd, is it right to heal on the Sabbath or not? And then he, of course, he does so, but in a way that he knows will provoke opposition. He could have healed the guy outside, yeah. but instead he does it in a way that's de- deliberately provocative. Okay. And, and uh, when asked straightforward questions, he often demurs, or he'll come back with a question. And my, my point is that it was more important to Jesus that people actually be challenged to consider their presuppositions, to consider their way of life, uh, to make a moral change, than it was to simply, you know, sort of give them a formula that fit into their previous expectations. If he had come out straightforward and said, yes, I'm the Messiah, uh, then people would immediately have imposed upon that what they already thought the Messiah should be doing, right, which was conquering the Romans and, and, and reestablishing the borders of the Solomonic Empire. He wanted to call people to a different mode of life before he connected that to his messianic identity. All right. T.A. or Timothy, thank you so much uh, for your email today. If you would like to send us a, a, an email for a future show, the address ctc at ewtn.com. Right now, we've got open phone lines. Our uh, screener, Matt Kabinsky, staring at the phone, waiting for that light to come on. He's drumming his fingers. Let's give him a phone call or two here at EWTN's Call to Communion, 833-288-3986. Do call now. 
It's called a communion on this uh, Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-3986. If you're planning on calling tomorrow, uh-uh. We are preempted because of our live coverage of the March for Life from Washington, D.C. with uh, Teresa Tamio on the ground there. We've got anchors all set up. It's all going to happen tomorrow right here live on EWTN radio and television. Uh, so that is going to preempt our program. So my recommendation is call now. Otherwise, you're going to have to hold that question until Monday. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. We'll continue with more questions in just a moment. Let me tell you about something beautiful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It is the St. Michael Holy Water font with a pewter finish. This stunning holy water font features a three-dimensional figure of St. Michael the Archangel defeating the devil. It has a pewter-style finish with gold accents. It has a flat back and base, so it can either hang on the wall or stand freely on a tabletop. Measuring 8 inches from the base to the top of St. Michael's wing and the base and very generous, 1 inch deep, it holds a generous amount of holy water or it could even be used as a nice place to keep your rosary. How about that? Check it out right now by going to EWTNRC.com. If you put St. Michael font in the uh, search bar, then you'll find it. EWTNRC.com. Getting back to the phones in just a moment. First, uh, this question from Matt watching us today on YouTube. Hey there, Matt. Matt says, Can Dr. Andrews recommend an introductory book on the doctrine of God the Trinity, the hypostatic union, the two wills of Christ, etc. Yep, I got a couple for you. Uh, classic text from Frank Sheed, Theology for Beginners. Okay. A more contemporary uh, book in the same sort of literary genre would be the book The Light of Christ, An Introduction to Catholicism by Thomas Joseph White. Okay couple of great uh, sources for you there, Matt. Thanks for watching us today on YouTube. Interesting question. I don't think I've ever seen this one before. This is from Marie. How can a person be absolved of sin if they're unable to go to confession? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. You can make an act of perfect contrition. Okay. That's that's always been the teaching of the Church. It's always been the reality, morally, in the universe. I mean, King David writes about this in Psalm 51 when he says, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. You make an act of perfect contrition, you can be forgiven. Um, Now, when you don't have access to the sacrament, you lack that affirming word of absolution that gives us that objective certainty that our our contrition has been heard, that our Uh act of penitence has been accepted. It doesn't so it doesn't mean you're not forgiven it just means you don't have that objective response from someone authorized to speak for God now I see. if you do make an act of perfect contrition and you receive absolution directly from God uh, if you want to return to the practice of the sacraments you still need to make it to confession now um, in my experience there are very few instances when people are absolutely incapable and for a long period of time of not making it to the sacrament of penance even if you can't leave your house, uh, you can always, of course, arrange for a pastoral visit from a priest. And uh, I know many priests who have yeah. visited people in their homes or nursing homes or wherever it might be to hear their confessions. Um, you know, sometimes uh, I can think of a situation if you are incarcerated um, and uh, and there's a situation in your diocese where there aren't priests that are serving as chaplains to the prison population. That uh-huh. can be a bit more complicated. But, 
you know, barring any, but even then, they're supposed to, and dioceses are supposed to make uh, priests available to attend to the spiritual needs of prisoners. But there is, where there's a will, there's a way. There better believe it. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from, um, well, I don't see a name here, but hopefully this person, uh, the first initial of D, hopefully that person will uh, hear this program and get that answer. The question is, what is the Catholic teaching regarding attendance to a non-Catholic wedding. My nephew is Catholic. He's engaged to marry a girl that I'm told is baptized Episcopal. Their marriage ceremony is planned to be held in a hotel setting. I assume an Episcopal minister will be performing the ceremony, but that's not been confirmed. I do know that a Catholic priest will not be present. Yeah, so unless your nephew has a dispensation from his bishop, which I strongly doubt he has obtained, uh, this wedding will be invalid in the eyes of the Church, and you will not be validly married. Uh, the question of whether or not to attend a wedding of what will be presumed to be an invalid marriage is a prudential one based on uh, what is the best plan, what is the best policy to help your nephew come back to the practice of the faith. And that really is a that's a prudential judgment on your part about where you can exercise the greatest influence. Would it be by taking a stand for the church's position and letting him know how you feel and and sort of voting with your feet, so to speak? Or would it be privileging the relationship so that you have an open ear to what you might say in the future about your relationship to Christ and the Catholic Church? And sometimes you can split the difference, Mm. depending on the circumstances. You might say, well, I wish you would marry in the church because the Catholic Church will regard your marriage as invalid, uh, but I want you to know that I'm behind you as a human being and I'm going to be there, but I, I wish you wouldn't do it this way. But the, so any one of those is a possibility. The, well, the ultimate goal is the reconciliation of the, sure. of the person to the church. What's the best pastoral plan for getting there? That's got to be a, kind of a prudential judgment on your part. Dee, thanks so much uh, for your email. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Lisa in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey there, Lisa. What's on your mind today? Yes, hello. Well, I was a brand-new Christian. I was in my 50s, and I, you could choose an hour that you wanted to pray because I wanted to keep somebody praying at all times. So on the hour that I chose, I went to the church, and I went, and there was a statue of Jesus, and I knelt down by that, and I was just praying and giving my heart to him and stuff. Well, at the next sermon, the next uh, Mass, pastor started berating that. He never came to me and talked to me, but he started berating it from the pulpit, saying how wrong that was and what a bad um, example I was, and, and, you know, just on and on about it, was that I was worshiping, I'd give people the idea I was worshiping statues, and I just wanted to know what the truth is about that. Yeah, thank you. So your priest could not be more wrong. He could not be more wrong. In fact, his attitude suggests to me that he is I'm not I'm not going to call him a heretic but he is skirting dangerously close to heresy because there is an ecumenical council the 7th ecumenical council of the Catholic Church that specifically condones and advocates the veneration of images as an appropriate practice for the Catholic faithful and so he is he is directly contradicting the infallible teaching of an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, 
2,000 years of Catholic tradition and infallible dogma. So he, 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 has, he isn't just in left field. He's left the field entirely and like <laughs> gone off into the parking lot, right? Oh, he is really, really wrong about this, profoundly wrong, profoundly wrong. So you, you go right on back to the parish and you venerate the image of the Blessed Mother or St. Joseph or St. Anthony or whoever else it was. And, and quite honestly, if that priest is the pastor of the parish, I personally would change parishes. That would be my response to that personally. If he's the parochial vicar, the assistant priest at the parish, then I might have a conversation with the pastor uh-huh. about the fact that he more or less took the, the Protestant Zwinglian heretical view on on the veneration of images, which has been repeatedly condemned by the Catholic Church, first at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, but also the Council of Trent, uh, reaffirmed the traditional propriety of venerating images. So he, he really is just, can I say this more emphatically, just absolutely wrong. Wow. Lisa, is that helpful for you? Yes, very helpful. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. so much. Thanks so much for your call today. It's uh, called to communion here on EWTN. Looks like three lines open at the moment. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an anonymous emailer who says, with the recent blessings allowed by the Pope, why don't we go to the Bible like Leviticus 20:13? If we don't follow this, why do we not discard the whole of the Ten Commandments? Um, Leviticus. Sorry, I don't have Leviticus 2013 memorized, so we're going to pull that sucker up. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I, I, I kind of thought that's where we were going. This was, a, this was a piece of Levitical civil legislation for Israel that, that advocated the death penalty for homosexual relations. Um, so are you, are you advising that that be the content of the blessing pronounced? right, that the pastor call forth the death penalty on the people involved? Yikes. If that's what you're advocating, I would say that's that's not an appropriate response. And Jesus spoke to that explicitly uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8, when he was brought a woman who was caught in adultery, which was another capital offense in ancient Israel, and challenged directly by the Pharisees as to, as to whether or not they should execute the sentence of, of death on this woman who was called in adultery. And I, of course, I'm, I'm sure you know the story. Jesus refuses to answer their question, and instead he, he, uh, he says, you know, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, and he bends down and begins to, you know, draw in the dirt until one by one they all fall away. So um, it's pretty obvious that, that Jesus did not call for the strict uh, uh, enforcement of Mosaic civil legislation against sinners in his own time, and even less today. So um, uh, yeah, that'd be my answer. All right. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your call, your question today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Let's go now to Grant in Santa Fe, New Mexico, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Grant. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello, Dr. Anders. My name is Grant, and my question is uh, was triggered by uh, the question earlier regarding the uh, nephew's uh, uh, marriage outside of the church. Uh, so I have a big, you know, broader question than that. My, but it started with uh, the marriage thing because my daughter is engaged to be married, and I asked her the other day uh, if she would consider marry, marrying in the Catholic Church. She was baptized Catholic, um, but she's not a practicing Catholic, and I think she's the 
converted into uh, periodic uh, attendance at uh, non-denominational Protestant churches. So I guess the bigger question is, I have a fear. I don't know if this is a real fear or not, but <clears throat> when she passes away, will she be held accountable if she continues to uh, for walking away from the Catholic Church? Even though I think... Uh, you know, this generation, the millennial generation, I mean, they just, it, it has a different view on things. Uh, yeah, they do, in fact. I yeah. appreciate the questions. Here's the Catholic Church's position on people who walk away from the Church. It really depends on the extent of her knowledge and freedom. And so if someone says, yes, I know that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus, this is the authoritative uh, representative of God in the world. This is the sacrament of salvation that but, but demonstrates and manifests God's presence in the world, and we're all called to belong to this one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and that we may be one, that the world can know that Jesus was sent by God. And if they understand all that and say, but yeah, you know what? I don't want to. <laughs> right and and sort of with eyes wide open they walk away from that. That's a really dangerous moral position to be in because it involves you. It implicates you in violating your own conscience. Now, in my own experience, I have met very few people in the world who have that level of moral clarity about the identity of the Catholic Church who have left it. And what I hear all the time from ex-Catholics who join other denominations is something like this. Well, you know, I never really knew the Catholic faith, and I didn't really have a relationship with Jesus, and I went to this other church, and I found they had a, a, a spirituality I could relate to, so I went there. That's a really common story, and I personally cannot bring myself to form a harsh judgment against somebody that I regard as having received bad pastoral care in the Catholic Church, such that they weren't able of, to live a, a, a fruitful Catholic life. I don't necessarily blame the person. I might blame the pastor or the parish or the institution or the catechist or whoever. Uh, ultimately, that determination, of course, lies with God. Yeah, for sure. And uh, thanks so much for your call, Grant. Here is uh, Scott now. Scott's in Michigan, listening to us on the EWTN app, a free download. Hey there, Scott. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, in listening to the uh, a previous caller about uh, the question where um, Jesus wanted to keep um, a miracle silent, particularly the one with the withered hand in the in the uh, temple, uh -huh. which actually was uh, in the morning morning prayer uh, readings this morning. Um, my question is. With the report in the Bible that, you know, crowds, hundreds if not thousands of people came and Jesus healed them, he healed many, many people, why is it in the four Gospels it seems to be a certain set of miracles that are repeated throughout those? And there aren't so many more reported, and that sort of relates back to, again, the earlier question about why did he want to keep those secret? But that's a separate issue. But if there were so many hundreds, if not thousands, of miracles performed during his few years that he was doing this, why is there just a limited set of those reported in the Gospel? Okay. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate the question. So keep in mind that the genre, the literary genre of the Gospels, is not what you might call biography. 
And in fact, there's nothing like the Gospels in in the history of world literature. And so uh, biblical scholars who address this question of genre usually say that the Gospels are gospel genre. It's a different genre of literature. Now, here comes the break. If you'll hold on to that question, I'm going to answer the rest of it after the break. Sit tight, Scott. We'll continue this on the other side. We'll also talk with Michelle in Syracuse, Charles in Akron, Debbie in Connecticut. Looks like uh, maybe two lines left at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Do stay with us. It's called a communion for you on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. We have two lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before the break, we were talking with Scott in Michigan, who posed the question, if Jesus healed so many people, why weren't more of them recorded uh, in the Bible? Yeah, so I began to answer the question before the break, reminding the audience that the Gospels are not biography in the traditional sense. They're not intended to give a blow-by-blow account of all the major events of Jesus' life, you know, from from birth to death. Mm -hmm. They are written, according to St. John and his Gospel, that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him have life, right? So they have a very specific purpose. And each of the Gospel writers... Uh, is an author. He has he, he makes creative use of his source material and tailors it to particular thematic concerns. And so he it's just like you know any any time you're involved in writing an essay or some sort of some sort of a creative work, you have a whole body of research in front of you. You decide, well, what of this research am I going to use? What is useful for my project? And of course, the ultimate end of this project is to bring people to faith, and 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 not just faith in the fact that Jesus performed miracles. You'll note that he, our caller mentioned that the miracles tend to get clumped into certain kind of consistent themes, and that's very true. And the un, those themes speak to underlying spiritual realities. So, if you consider the number of blind people that Jesus heals in the Gospels, in light of the fact that Jesus is constantly uh, admonishing us to adjust our vision. And so not only is there a physical healing in the gospel, but the physical healing becomes a kind of metaphor for the opening of our spiritual vision to be able to see reality in a new light, namely with the mind of Christ. The same thing would be true of uh, the cleansing of the lepers. Uh, they point us again to the necessity of moral cleansing, not just the cleansing of the body, but the cleansing of the interior life. Uh, and so, you know, for these purposes, it, it's not necessary for them to give a blow-by-blow account of every miracle or every healing that Jesus performed, but to select the material and present it thematically in a way that ultimately obtains their their spiritual objectives. Scott, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call from Michigan. Called to communion here on EWTN. Hey, congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Sacred Heart Radio of the Northwest. They are celebrating 23 years with us this week. They are now on 12 AM and FM radio stations covering uh, Washington State and even Kodiak, Alaska. How about that? Congratulations to Ron Belter and his great team at Sacred Heart Radio from your friends here at EWTN. All right, let's uh, get back to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Michelle in Syracuse listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hello, Michelle. What's on your mind today? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I 
was wondering about the orange posture by the laity during Mass. When I went through formation for ministry, um, the priest that taught the class on liturgy said it's absolutely not acceptable for the laity to be mimicking the priest, yet I see it happening all the time at Mass. So can you um, kind of talk about that? Yeah, sure. I appreciate the question. So in the in the missal there is no there's no rubric that instructs the laity to pray with this posture and so if you want to just do what is in the book you you, you just say the black and do the red then you wouldn't have the laity praying the orons um, now you can make a, a a theological argument for it and it's the one that you were already given that this is a posture that is specifically associated with the priest's right of blessing in the church, and we don't want to do something that would confuse the role of priest and laity in the context of sacred liturgy. Now, as soon as I've said that, I have to I have to issue a caveat, and the caveat is that sacred scripture says in First Timothy two eight, I want men everywhere to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, and. The Oran's posture is a traditional posture of Jewish and Christian prayer going back to antiquity, and outside the Latin West is more commonly found, uh, you know, with, with the laity than it is in the in the Catholic West. And mm-hmm. so my my answer is a little bit nuanced, and that is that within the context of the liturgy of the Roman Rite, um, it has a very specific connotation that is associated with the priesthood, but that would not necessarily translate into therefore you should never do it anywhere. Mm, okay. Hey, Michelle, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's help, helpful for you. A question here from Kairos watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Were Mary and her Jewish contemporaries expecting the Messiah to be incarnated as a man? Would Jewish girls have been expecting one of them to be the bearer of Christ? Yeah, thank you so much. So the idea of the incarnation, that that the second person of the Trinity would assume a human nature and be born of a human female is something that the Jews did not anticipate. They were not looking for that. So uh-huh. their expectations about the Messiah was that there would be another earthly king like David, like Solomon, mm. who would be a man of God, one appointed by God, perhaps a prophet, uh, who would unite the people of God, gather the exiles, uh, perhaps reestablish the borders of the Solomonic Empire, um, but not that he would be God incarnate. Okay. Um, so if you if you understand that they were not expecting God in the flesh, they would, of course, have expected the Messiah to be born of a human female, because where else would he have come from? Well, yeah. Kairos, thanks for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Here's Charles now in Akron, Ohio, listening on the great Living Bread Radio, another longtime partner with EWTN. Hello, Charles. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Uh, it, Am I committing a sin if I know that some, some another Catholic has committed a sin and I didn't tell that person, I, I believe you committed a sin, um, perhaps you should go to confession? Sure, I understand the question. It depends entirely on three conditions. One is the gravity of the sin in question. The graver the sin, the the weightier the responsibility. Second is the likelihood of the person to receive an admonition. Uh-huh. So if you're talking to someone and you have a 
you have a good reason to think that they would hear the admonition, then that increases your responsibility. On the other hand, if you think your admonition is likely to put them on the defensive posture and to make them double down in their behavior, well, then that would not be a prudent choice. It wouldn't be prudent to do something that would lead them further to sin. And the final qualification is whether or not you're the person who's best suited to make the admonition. So many times, for example, maybe the pastor of the parish would be best suited to make the admonition. Uh, you know, perhaps a close friend would be best suited to make the admonition. Whoever is in the position of being the best suited to make the admonition has the greater responsibility. So uh, just because you see a Catholic sin does not mean you're morally obligated to run over there and tell them that they're wrong. And very often that's a foolish thing to do. There are situations in which that is advisable. Um, uh, but that's a judgment call based on your analysis of those three conditions. Charles, thanks so much uh, for your call. We do appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. This is really a tough one. This is from Doug on YouTube this afternoon. Doug says, back in the 90s, my brother and his wife had two kids. They got pregnant with a third child, but the park they lived in had a rule of only they can have two children. So they aborted the baby. Is this considered that they were forced, or will they need to confess that abortion? They were not forced to uh, to to uh, to have that abortion at all. That was uh, that was freely chosen. So that's uh, that's a grave sin. Yeah. Okay. Doug, thanks for watching us on YouTube. We hope that's helpful for you. Here is uh, Debbie now. Debbie is a first-time caller in Connecticut, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Debbie, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Andrews. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question concerning a dear friend of mine. He is now in hospice, and in my conversation with him the other day, I had said to him, I'm, you know, you're in my rosaries, you're in my prayers, and he said he doesn't believe in the rosary. He goes straight to Jesus, and he counts on him for everything. I'm just worried that um, he will not even make it to purgatory because he does not believe in the Blessed Mother or anybody that would intercede on his behalf. He goes straight to Jesus. Right. I appreciate the question. So, fortunately, it really is not my purview or yours to determine the likelihood of a person's salvation. That judgment is left up to God, and the indications that we have from sacred scripture are that that is based more on things like, did you uh, give drink to the thirsty and food to the hungry and clothing to the naked and visit the sick and imprisoned? Uh, it's more about the ethical quality of your life and whether or not your life is suffused by charity and the virtues. That's really the basis on which we're to be judged. And the rest of the Catholic faith, uh, the liturgy, the sacraments, the prayers, devotions, and doctrines, have an instrumental role, a functional role, and the role is to move us to the imitation of Christ. They are not; they themselves do not save us. It is the realities to which they point that save us, right? So that, and, and while they're normative, while God gave us the Church and the sacraments and the teaching and the Pope and the bishops and the like to, to be pastors to our souls, again, it's... It's, it's through those tools that we come to a participatory knowledge of Christ in charity. Um, and so you, you, I wouldn't form the judgment, you know, this man is going to go to hell because he doesn't pray the rosary. Um, the question is, you know, just as applicable, here's a Catholic who prays the rosary daily, 
but they're a um, uh, but they're a cocky, self-assured, you know, arrogant narcissist. Well, the rosary is not going to save that person. Yeah. Right. Uh, the point of the faith is is the transformative knowledge of the love of God. And again, the, the the basis of that judgment, or I should say, the one making that judgment is God Himself. So, uh, you know, my recommendation to you would be just you keep on praying the rosary for Him. Yeah. Right. You you, you do all the rosaries on His behalf and ask that they work for Him. Sounds good to me. Debbie, thanks so much for your call today. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Hey, this is the last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get your call on today's program, 833-288-3986. And as I mentioned, we're going to be preempted tomorrow by the uh, March for Life live from Washington, D.C. So if you don't want to wait around till uh, Monday to get your question answered, call now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. Hey, be sure to join us for EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, a wonderful weekly program we have for you. That's coming up Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. This week, Prudence Robertson discusses the March for Life with Jeannie Mancini, who's in charge of it, and also the importance of a continuing pro-life advocacy. Plus, a look back at the powerful conversation with Jean Marie Davis. You may have missed that one. He, she, she was saved from a life of human trafficking, by a worker at a pregnancy resource center. Great show. Check it out. EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Claire near Dayton, Ohio, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio AM 910. And Claire, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi. Um, I have a question about um, the woman who... um wiped Jesus' face as he was carrying his cross. Um, She's often referred to as Veronica or St. Veronica, Um, but I don't know of any mention of her in the Bible, and I wondered how that came about, um, especially with the name. I mean, how do we know it was Veronica, and how do we know that this happened? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. The best of my knowledge, the first historical mention of a Veronica is from a 5th century apocryphal gospel called the Gospel of Nicodemus, which is not a canonical gospel, is no part of the Catholic Bible. And uh, the legend sort of appears more fully formed in the 11th or 12th centuries uh, in the Latin West. So it's not very well attested, and certainly not uh, well attested at all before, say, about the 5th century. So uh, all that is to say, I think the the case for historical uh, validity is quite thin, uh, and I, I wouldn't stake anything on the existence of an historical Veronica. Um, but to my way of looking at it, that's it really doesn't matter. I mean, the, the point of Veronica, particularly as she appears, say, in the Stations of the Cross, is to inspire us to acts of piety towards yeah, Christ, and yeah. you can— derive that as well from a pious story as you can from an historical account. Claire, thanks so much for your call today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Let's go now to Mike. Mike is in uh, Michigan, and uh, let's see here, uh, listening in uh, Ludington Catholic Radio. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Uh, My question is, it seems like Jesus died very young at 33, and he would have gotten maybe more followers and more done if he lived longer especially the modes of travel back then, we're walking and, uh, you know, riding on a camel or a horse. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. 
Well, I, I guess I'd have to differ with one thing you suggested, and that was that Jesus would have gotten more followers. I, I think that, what are we, something like a billion Christians in the world today? I, I think Jesus did okay when it came to getting followers, <laughs> if yeah. you look not just among his contemporaries, but throughout mm-hmm. human history. Uh, I, I think there are probably no one on the planet, no human on the planet, has had a greater historical influence in the person of Jesus Christ, and he did that in 33 years. But the other thing about your question that I would take issue with is, uh, you know, to, if you think about Jesus's—the purpose of Jesus's ministry as being, you know, eliciting a kind of, um, you know, contemporary social influence— I think that's a that's a narrow view that doesn't really take into account the what the Bible has to say about the purpose of Christ. Christ uh, Christ's ministry was found its culmination in his sacrificial death. I mean, there's a very real sense in which Christ was born in order to die, and Saint Paul says that we'll boast only in one thing, namely the cross of Christ. And while all of Christ's ministry is significant, uh, it really does come to a focal point in this in this uh, act of sacrifice that becomes the pattern of all Christian life. And, uh, and so, you know, Jesus himself foreswore. He, he gave up things like, you know, a family and, a, you know, a, a normal nine-to-five job. He says, I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When confronted with the horror of the cross, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will but thine be done. And we know the end of that story, right? So um, don't sell short— uh, the ultimate value of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which is in in in, in real sense the main reason that he came, uh, his teaching was adequate. I mean, he was able to say what needed to be said. He was able to gather a company of disciples and mentor them and send them out to perpetuate his ministry and his message. Uh, and then all of that teaching ultimately. Uh, focuses in it, it. It reduces down to this message of self-sacrificial love, which he which he demonstrated and made available to us on the cross. And we thank you so much for your call, Mike, and appreciate that. Here's an email now from um, Diego. Diego says, "Dr. Andrews, I recently watched a debate." on the topic of Zionism that involved a Catholic and a Jewish man. At one point, the Jewish man stated if Jesus came back today, he would attend a synagogue rather than the Catholic Church. He followed up his statement with the claim that the Catholic Church is keeping the full truth about Jesus hidden from the world because they only include the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, and not other, quote, Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas and such. What do you make out of all this? Yeah, thanks. So there's two different claims here. Uh, let's do the second one first, that the Catholic Church is involved in sort of suppressing legitimate information about Jesus. I don't find that credible at all. Um, first of all, uh, even skeptical historical scholars, um, and I'm thinking of somebody like, uh, say, Bart Ehrman, who's an atheist who absolutely doesn't believe in the in the inspiration of the Bible at all and does talk quite a lot about non-canonical Gospels. Uh-huh doesn't think they're historical, right? So I mean, he, when, he, when he says, okay, I, I you know, Bart Ehrman, who is an atheist and a skeptic and don't believe the Bible, want to try to get at the question of the historical Jesus, uh, he typically tries to do that from within the context of the canonical Gospels, because he thinks that the, the, the stories we find therein are uh, sort of more bedrock and, and, and credible 
history, right? He I doesn't see. believe all of the history, but that that's he's going to exegete their, those texts to try okay. to get at what he thinks the underlying historical reality is. All right. So those non-canonical gospels, I don't, I don't really think there's much of anybody who's a scholar that thinks they have anything to tell us about the historical Jesus, or very, very little, right? A little bit of debate about whether or not the gospel, the gospel of Thomas, which is non-canonical, seems to draw at least some of the same oral tradition that underlies some of the canonical gospels, but it has other texts as well, and it's really hard to determine you know, whether or not those should be given any sort of historical credibility. So, uh, and nothing really doctrinally hangs on that. I mean, uh, I think the most credible historical picture of Jesus is one that we can derive from the canonical Gospels. Um, now, the question of uh, if would Jesus attend a synagogue um, if he were here today, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's tricky, and there's more nuance than you might think, because, see, Christ came in the fullness of time. The, the position of the Catholic Church and of the New Testament is that Christ's arrival at the precise time that he arrived was not a kind of historical accident. He couldn't have been dropped at any old place in history. And he did, in fact, uh, conduct his ministry primarily to the Jews. But from the point of view of the New Testament, that, that, that was a really specific move for a specific time. And the instructions that he gave his disciples was not to restrain, restrict their ministry to the synagogues, but to go to all the world. So first he went to the children of Abraham according to the flesh, um, and then having done that, they went forth and told the nations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so St. Paul writes a whole letter about the fact that most Jews in Jesus' day didn't believe him, and the Gentiles were. And he ties that to a very specific eschatology, a view of the unfolding of history— so, I mean, from a Catholic point of view, like, Christ is active in the world today, and principally through the Catholic Church, which is this extension of Jesus' ministry, but to all the nations. So, there you go. All right. Appreciate that, Diego. Thanks so much for your email. Here's Michael now in Dayton, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Michael. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, Dr. Anders, I'm trying to appeal to the Blessed Hope to a group of guys um, or women I'm on a Facebook page that are Jewish and uh, Christian about the war. It's called the Righteous Gentile. But what I'm appealing to them is that the new Israel is the Church, and that if Israel, the Jews, and the Palestinians would both convert, and what would that, what would be the potential leverage that we would need, like say when St. Paul was converted because of all the Christians praying, <laughs> what would, is there any kind of anticipation how that could possibly have happened? Yeah, absolutely. So the way to convert the world, uh, including Israelis and Palestinians, is for the Church of Christ to go about the business of being the Church of Christ uh, with fidelity and charity, right? That That the Church is already the sign and instrument of God's presence in the world. And so we need to do that real hard and fast. That, that's the best way to do it. Uh, what we don't want to do is fall into the trap of thinking that we need some stratagem specifically designed to coerce a particular people group. You know, in other words, proselytism, that my uh-huh. goal is to target an individual and say, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to get that individual or that group to convert to Catholicism, because then I risk making them uh, really a kind of object. And I, 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 I don't... Re- I'm not listening to them in in their intrinsic humanity. I'm I'm trying to force an agenda on them to bend their will to mine. 
that's not how Jesus operated. Jesus was perfectly content to go out there and to be himself and to preach the gospel and to eat with sinners and then leave the question of conversion or following him up to them. And the, and the church condemns proselytism while it advocates evangelism. So that's what we need to do. We need to evangelize and not proselytize and also not not try to tell God how he has to solve geopolitical problems. Yeah. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for your call from Dayton. Joey, right here in Birmingham, called and asks, Dr. Andrews, you just mentioned Bart Ehrman, and he infuriates me. Is his bitter atheism the natural consequence of fundamentalism, or is it a rare deviation from the norm? Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. Now, I don't know Dr. Ehrman personally, of course, so I will speak only about what I have heard him say and try to give an accurate account of his position. Um, uh, uh, First of all, I don't regard... Uh, Ehrman's atheism as at all bitter. He doesn't come across to me as a bitter person, and and he, uh, I just don't see that he has that kind of animus. And he doesn't. It's not like some of the new atheists that really go after religious believers and attack them head on. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't get that personally from Ehrman. Um, uh, in his own account of his atheism, he says that his higher critical views of the Bible had nothing to do with his atheism, that he was for decades a liberal Christian who had a very low view of the Bible and its inspiration, and yet continued to believe in God, that ultimately what led him to atheism was the problem of theodicy or the problem of evil. Um, so uh, that doesn't seem to me to be a natural product of fundamentalism or of bitterness. Uh, it is a, it's a deep philosophical problem that a lot of people have wrestled with, and and uh, and many people find traditional religious answers to the problem of evil unconvincing and remain in atheism. So um, yeah, I don't I don't want to pass judgment on anybody's conscience or soul, and I'm certainly not angry at him. I mean, I understand his position, and you know, we look forward to good faith dialogue with sure. people like him and others that don't believe the Catholic faith. And and uh, and you know, he's he's been engaged with Catholic apologists seemingly charitably. Uh, Jimmy Aiken. Uh, ha- online has a debate with Bart Ehrman that Catholic Answers sponsored on the reliability of the Gospels, and it seemed to go off pretty well, and everybody was jovial and enjoyed one another. So you can go check out Jimmy Aiken's debate with Bart Ehrman if you want to. There you go. And uh, by, uh, Joey, right here in Birmingham, thanks for checking in. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. As we mentioned, uh, we're not going to have a Friday program for you tomorrow because we'll be carrying live the March for Life from Washington, D.C. on EWTN Radio and on EWTN Television as well. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price along with uh, Charles and Matt and Rich. Looking forward to our next visit. It's going to be Monday right here on the Monday edition of Call to Communion. Have yourselves a wonderful weekend. We will see you next time. God bless. God bless.